Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are in a major study of the book of Daniel, and today we are continuing in the second chapter of Daniel. The main character in this lesson? Nebuchadnezzar. We see Daniel being honored because of his God. The lesson is taken from Daniel chapter 2 and verses 46 to 49. You will certainly want to have your Bible ready, as we will be looking at many verses through the Bible to prove what is happening in the second chapter of Daniel. Well, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the First Baptist Church in downtown Dallas, Texas. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about, well, I don't know if we'll make it to the furnace yet, but we'll be talking about that furnace and how hot it has to be to, to smelt gold. Could they possibly heat it seven times hotter than that? Well, we'll have to talk about that. But we've seen that God chose in his sovereign wisdom to give this dream in chapter two to Nebuchadnezzar, why he would give it to a pagan Someone who really was evil. I don't know. Well, yes, I do know now. I'm going to, we're going to talk probably about four reasons why God would do this. I think it's interesting to try and discover the reasons that God does things. Now, does God ever do anything for no reason? No, no he doesn't. He always has a reason. Now, usually there are probably thousands of reasons for the things he does as everything is working together in his plan. Maybe we'll get to know one or two or three, but let's talk about the reasons. I think the first reason that God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream was he wanted to introduce himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, the end of chapter one has not occurred yet. He hasn't, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have not graduated yet. So he doesn't know Daniel, and he doesn't know God. In fact, he's maybe heard of Yahweh, but he said, I defeated him and his people in Judah. He's no good. Well, he's going to find something different than that. The reason he defeated Judah and quote, unquote, Yahweh's people was because Yahweh wanted him to and was using him as an instrument of punishment. The second reason is to demonstrate to Nebuchadnezzar who is really in control. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control. He is not. God is in control. And he wants to let him know that he is in control of history past and history future. God's in control. He's got it all planned out. Very interesting concept. I want us to talk more about that concept in just a second after we pray. Father, as we open your book today, I pray that you will speak through me. You will fill me with your Holy Spirit, empower what I say, direct where I go, and have this time that we spend together 
an enriching and learning experience where your Holy Spirit is the teacher. I pray that you'll keep the distractions out and you'll help us to understand who's really in control and that we can rely on you and trust you. And there's no reason for us to fear because you're in control. You're in control of whether a foreign power wants to invade us and you're in control of whether a virus wants to invade us and you're in control of every single aspect of both of those events. And so I pray, Father, today you will instill us with a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you know, lawyers tend to think, well, if it's really true, it's written down somewhere. Now, that's, you know, how lawyers are. But the fact is, God is claiming that he has this plan and he has it all planned out. Is it written down anywhere? Or are you going to say, oh, it's just in the mind of God? Well, the mind of God, does he really have it written down? Is there any evidence of that? We're going to skip ahead just a little bit. We're going to look at Daniel 10. And I'm going to have you look at it in like three or four different translations. We'll start out with the preferred translations, New American Standard Bible. Then he, that is the angelic being who's speaking to Daniel, said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return and fight against the prince of Persia, So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. He's talking about angelic conflict and who he's going to have to fight who are followers of Satan. Uh, Demonic beings, fallen angels, who are with Satan. But notice verse 21. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Now, what is that phrase saying? Inscribed. That means written down. In the writing of truth. It's a writing that's always true. If you were to look at the ESV, it would use the phrase inscribed in the book of truth. If you look at the King King James, it will say noted in the scripture of truth. If you look in the New King James, it says exactly the same thing. And why I put the NLT in there, I don't know, but it says written in the book of truth. It appears that God's plan is written down. It's his book. We don't have access to it. But sometimes he reveals parts of it to us, just like he did to Nebuchadnezzar, just like he's going to do to Daniel. He's going to reveal it. And he did in this dream. Now, last week, we talked about a portion of the dream, the last portion of the dream, the stone. If you remember, it was a stone kingdom. A kingdom that will commence at the end of the time of the Gentiles. So the time of the Gentiles starts with Nebuchadnezzar, and it will end with the toes, which is the time of the Antichrist. And at the end of the time of the Antichrist, that seven-year period, then the stone kingdom will make himself known. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to say something. He probably doesn't really understand what he is saying. Now, let's stop just a second. Can God put words in a man's mouth who's not a believer and yet have him say exactly what he wants him to say? What is the the promise in Proverbs 21.1? The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. Now, does that 
if that means, if he's using the word king there, can that also mean president? Can that also mean chief justice of the Supreme Court? Can that also mean governor, whether the governor of the state of Texas or Florida, or governor of New York? It can mean all of those people. It can mean the judge who's sitting in the trial. It can mean the jurors who are in the box. It can mean all of those things. So, I want you to see here that this kingdom will commence the end of the time of the Gentiles. It will eliminate every vestige of the preceding kingdoms. It will completely destroy them. It will not be built on the back of them. It will not be dependent on them. You see, each of those kingdoms in that statue were based upon the one before it. Not this time. Totally new. And we learned something interesting, a, a very interesting principle. We learned that men make bricks, God makes stones. So, at the end of this event recorded in chapter 2, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to what Daniel has done and what he's told the king. And so we'll start in chapter 2, verse 46. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll go back and look at it, seek to unpack it. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering of fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, and Daniel was in the king's court. Now, it appears as if from this passage that Nebuchadnezzar the king prostrates himself before this 17-year-old boy. Look at verse 46 again. Then the king, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face... Now, let me ask you, does that say something about what the king believes as to whether or not the dream was recited properly and the interpretation makes sense? Yes. Yeah, he realized, how could he know the dream that I had? Now, his first conclusion is wrong. This guy must be a god. That's what he's doing. I want you to notice this a second. He did homage. That means to worship someone. He made an offering. That's what you give to a God. And he also uh, provided fragrant incense. It's something that's soothing and tranquilizing. My wife would call it aromatherapy. But concept here is the same. He's doing this. Now, we got to ask ourselves a question here. Does God put everything that happened in the scriptures? No, he doesn't. I mean, for one reason, if he did, could you imagine carrying around that book? I mean, think about it a second. Did he put Daniel's prayer and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's prayer when they were asking for God to reveal the dream or to intervene? No. Now, he put Daniel's prayer of thanksgiving. You know, that would be an awesome prayer to memorize. Steve, have you memorized that prayer? Could you say it? Stand up and just say it for us real quick. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom 
power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the ethics. He removes kings and establishes kings. It is, uh, he, he gives wisdom, wise men, knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. In the light. He, he knows what is thinkable. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God, I will give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now, you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the King's matter. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) Can you imagine in a time that you're down? Or you don't really know what to do? Or things just don't seem to be going right? To be able to meditate on a passage like that. But many times... When you're down, don't know what to do, uh, or really just lost, you may not have a Bible with you, or be able to remember where in it to look. But if you have it here and here, it's always with you. And you always have a weapon that he can never take away. Satan can never take that weapon away. He can take away your Bible, unless it's hidden in your heart. Now, you look on... He didn't put everything in here, and I want you to see that because when he falls down, do you think Daniel's going to say something about that? Yeah, he is. He doesn't share, he knows his God doesn't want to share his glory with anyone. But why would, would King Nebuchadnezzar think Daniel's a God? Well, what did his wise men tell him? In chapter 2, verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now, I believe Daniel said something, and the reason I do, you're going to find in, in this next verse. It says in chapter 2, verse 47, And the king answered Daniel and said, Now, wait a second. What did Daniel say to answer him? that he's got to respond to. That word basically means to respond. What did Daniel, well, Daniel hadn't said anything since the king, well, that we know of. Daniel probably said, get up, king. You don't worship me. You worship God. So he deflects, and so where is now Nebuchadnezzar going to turn his praise? Well, you look. So the king responded to Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries since you've been able to reveal this mystery. Now, again, this word answered in the New American Standard, uh, it may be better translated respond to help us understand he's responding to what Daniel said to him. But now look what he says. Your God, your God here." You see, Nebuchadnezzar hasn't come over. This God is not his God yet. It's Daniel's God. But this is the start. This is the introduction. But then he says something pretty amazing. Your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. Now, when is the stone going to come? It's going to come at the end of the tribulation period, at just the right time. And where do we find that grand entrance? Revelation chapter 19. Look what it says. I'm going to start in verse 11 and 12 and then skip to 16. 
I saw the heavens open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Basically exactly what Nebuchadnezzar said. Who put those words in his mouth? Yes, we're beginning to see. Now, the next word I want to look at is mystery. In the uh, Aramaic, that's just the word secret. So he is a revealer, one who reveals secrets. So as a result, Daniel's response to the king's worship of him, the king turns his praise toward Daniel God. We consider the admission that Nebuchadnezzar makes when he says, a Lord of Lords, a Lord of Kings, that includes him, doesn't it? He's beginning to see who's in control here. Now, he's going to forget about this after a while, and he's going to have to be reminded in chapter 3. But to start with, this is what's happening. And Nebuchadnezzar then admits Daniel's God is superior to all others. So now he's going to bestow his gratitude on Daniel for what he did. I want you to notice something. Let's go back for a second because I don't want us to forget the main theme of these first six uh, chapters. What type of life is Daniel trying to live? An uncompromising life. Right, but we need to get the right word, don't you think? All right. But it doesn't convey the same meaning. Uncompromising. I will not compromise. Now, when he's telling this dream, is he going to tell Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's going to fail and it's going to fall? Well, did he not? He'd say, the, there's a new kingdom that's taken over for you. He could have said, well, you know, I'm not going to tell him that because that might upset him. No, he's not going to compromise. He's going to tell the truth. You know, this is the guy who said, I'm killing all these wise men if you can't do this impossible task. Daniel, no compromise. I'm going to tell you exactly what the word of God was to me, and there's going to be no equivocation about it. And he comes through. How does the king respond to him in that regard? Look in verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief, chief prefect over all the wise men in Babylon. Now I want you to consider what he's doing here. This word in Aramaic promote, translated promoted means to grow great. He has made him into a very, placed him in a very great position and he's making him ruler now making him ruler is three words in English it's one word in Aramaic and it is expressing causative action to make the ruler the one in charge in the same way that Pharaoh put Joseph in charge to a, a little lesser degree Nebuchadnezzar is putting Daniel in charge but not only the first thing is to understand that the empire of Babylon was divided into provinces, and each province had a governor or someone who was over it. The main province, most important province, was the province of Babylon, where the capital was. That's the province that Daniel was giving control over. That's the province that he was in charge of. But not only in a political position of being over this province, what about all the wise men? He's now chief prefect, chief magistrate or governor, he is over all the wise men. Who do you think that particularly made mad? Try Satan. Those were his men. 
necromancy, astrology, all of the black arts. That's what they used to supposedly advise the king. And Lucifer is not happy right now over what is going on. So as we begin to look at this now, we see in verse 49, Daniel did not forget his friends. They were in the trenches with him, and he's not going to forget them. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Daniel's three friends now work directly under him in the administration of the province of Babylon. But there's a question, a question we need to come to see, a question that Nebuchadnezzar would not know the right answer to. Who just appointed those boys into the positions they were given? But Nebuchadnezzar was the one who said they're going to do it. But you're right. I want you to look, just so there's clear, two passages, one in the old, one in the new. In Psalm 75, 6 and 7, it says, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the... You notice how he left north out? Because you know how the north is. Anyway, but God is the judge. He puts down one and sets up another. Who's doing the promoting? God is. Well, in 1 Peter, he says this, Therefore, humble yourselves before under the mighty hand of God. Does that describe Daniel? Absolutely. That he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do you need to worry, he's saying? No. Do you need to be concerned? No. Why? Because God is caring for you. I mean, is there anybody else in the universe better to have caring for you than God? No, of course not. And so we begin to see that. Now, what caused God to promote Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Why do you want to do that? What was, did he have a purpose? Did he have a reason? Luke sends to talk about this a little bit. If you look in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, he says this, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who's unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. And then in chapter 19, verse 17, he says, And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over ten cities. Now, I want you to see something here. A lot of people think what you eat, that's, that's not important. That's a little thing. Very little importance to that. Oh, God says, if you're faithful in a little thing, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be faithful in a big thing. But I don't give opportunities to be faithful in a big thing unless you've proved yourself faithful in the little thing. And that's the reason that God waited to promote them as he did, so that he could demonstrate this principle. You see, God also gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar so that he could use it to have his men put in the places that he wanted them. He want these men in that place. Now, let's go back and look at some things because I think it's important for us to see. What is it that Daniel demonstrated in verse 49, the last verse we read? What character trait is he demonstrating? Loyalty. Exactly right. Is loyalty an important trait for a believer? Yes. Is it an important trait when considering a prospective employee? Would it be an important trait 
for a commander of a platoon to have in those who are in his platoon? Would it be something important to determine whether they have when you're voting for a president or a congressman or a senator? Loyalty. Loyalty to who? Themselves? No. Loyalty to their nation. You know, they're supposed to take an oath that they're going to be loyal to the Constitution of the United States. Yes, he did. That no, I was going to say something and I, I shouldn't have. Now, loyalty pleases God and evidences the integrity of a man's heart. King's initial uh, promotion of Daniel, he promoted just Daniel alone. But notice Daniel's response. The king quickly acquiesced to what he said and promoted Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They had been in the trenches with Daniel when the prayer time came. They were there praying with him. They were all together. Do you think Daniel may, may think, you know, oh, yeah, he's promoting me now, but there may be times in the future where I'm going to need their prayers too. And yes, Daniel also stayed true to his friends with really out, without injuring or harming his master. So does God really value loyalty? Proverbs 20, verse 6, it says, Or many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? What is he saying? He's saying a lot of people will tell you they're loyal, but it's hard to find someone who's trustworthy and really loyal. In Proverbs 20, verse 28, it says, Loyalty and truth preserve the king, and he who upholds his... And he upholds his throne by righteousness. In other words, if you're the king, find people who are loyal and will tell you the truth, just like Daniel. Nehemiah, talking to the Lord, in chapter 13 of his book, verse 14, says, Remember me for this, O my God. Do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of God in its services. And then Hosea, speaking about... God's people who've turned their back on him. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim, and what shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Yeah, you appear to be loyal, but it fades quickly for you. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that, give, that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So that's the first thing I think we need to see on this. God values loyalty highly. That is something that we need to build into ourselves as part of our character. If you have trouble with loyalty, do you think if you ask God, I want that to be stronger in my life. Will you help me do it? You think he'll say, no, Don, you have to do that on your own. No, he won't. He will not say that. They did. We have it. To thank them for their loyalty to God in setting up a governmental system that used the principles of godliness in the system itself. Not trusting man to rule, but allowing the law to be the ultimate controller. And as time goes on, Satan has done everything he can to erode that. Now, let's look at something else we have to see here. Success 
And certainly Daniel has endured some great success here. Success can be the enemy of radical obedience. Daniel was practicing success can be the enemy. Well, let, let's review very quickly. If we're talking about radical obedience, we've spoken of this before. It has six key aspects. A radical obedience is obedience that is immediate, unquestioning, unconditional, complete, consistent, and wholehearted. You need to see that. You know, I was thinking today, or this last week, I always say the, the fifth one is consistent. A lot of times it seems like obedience has to be made in an instant, and it doesn't last. It doesn't have to, the choice is made, and then it's made. You know who's the model of consistent obedience? Noah. A hundred and twenty years worth. And they're laughing at him and jeering at him. Water's falling from the sky. Yeah, Noah. Have you ever seen that happen? No. And Noah never responded, hey, sucker, how long can you tread water? He didn't ever do that. Secondly, we've been speaking about the eight characteristics of an uncompromising life. And let me run through those with you very quickly. You speak and act with unashamed boldness. You're confident of unearthly protection. You carry on with an unhindered persistence. You adopt an uncommon standard. Your outlook on life is controlled by an unblemished faith. You're not unprepared for testing to come your way. You become the recipient of unlimited blessing, and you have an immeasurable influence presently and in the future. Think about that last one just a second. Daniel now is in charge of the wise men. Who do you think makes the decisions of what goes in their library? Daniel does. Where did the Magi come from in the first part of Matthew and Luke? They came from the east. That's Babylon, Persia, right in there, Susa. That's where these wise men came from, the lineage of Daniel. I don't mean lineage biologically. I mean uh, lineage spiritually. And that's why they took that prophecy of Balaam that he was going to give to curse the Israelites, and he couldn't help it. He blessed them. And they said, a star is coming out of Judah. And they recognized that star. And they said, he said, a scepter is going to be in his hand, making him king. So they came and said, where's the king of the Jews? Because they learned those lessons in Daniel's school of the prophets. Now, going on. If obedience is impaired, compromise ensues. And if compromise ensues, there is a great loss, a loss of unearthly protection, a loss of unlimited blessing, a loss of immeasurable influence. I want to show you this, not just in Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Mishael and Azariah's life. I also want to show it in other people in the scriptures. If you look for a second into uh, the story of Elijah, he had a twofold mission. First, it was to turn the people of Israel back to the worship of the one true God. You see, they'd started worshiping Baal. And Ahab and Jezebel were killing anybody who stood up and worshiped Yahweh. You had a question? Yeah. I want you to see these characteristics demonstrated. The part of the observation is actually from the law of Moses and the Deuteronomy. Uh, is actually what Elijah is doing comes from Deuteronomy. 
Right. He's going to use, you know, a lot of people say he's a prophet. He's prophesying he won't reign. All he's doing is quoting Deuteronomy, right? That, that God's going to make the heavens brass. But the thing is, I want us to see how these principles work out in the lives of God's men so you can see both sides. Uh, you start in Elijah's life. He was told that that, that was his mission. He was told also, and, and, and these passages are in the notes, and I'm not going to read them this morning. He, he was uh, told that he's going to stop the rain. And now, he was given the ability to call down fire from heaven, and he did it on Mount Carmel. Now, you ask yourself this question, well, was that just a one-time thing, or did he have that ability after that to call down fire from heaven? Interesting question. Now, some people say, well, he's going to do that during the tribulation period if he's one of the witnesses. And there's disagreement whether he will be or not. I believe he will. But if you were to read in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 18 through 15, he calls down fire heaven to burn up people who are coming after him. He was given that ability. Now, I want you to see this because it's very important to understand how he is seeing and what he's, he's doing. When something spectacular happens, like calling down fire and having to burn up that sacrifice, you can get sidetracked. Yet, Elijah did not allow the ability to call down fire from heaven to sidetrack him. His purpose was not to kill, although he did kill all the prophets of Baal. That was not his purpose. His purpose was to turn the hearts of the people being used by God to do that. And so what did he do next? He brought the rain. Now, it's interesting, when he told Ahab it's going to rain, and Ahab looked up, could he see a cloud in the sky? Probably not. not probably not. He couldn't. There was none there. When Elijah went up on Mount Carmel, he told Ahab, you go eat lunch, but I'm not going to eat lunch. I'm going to go have a prayer meeting. He goes up to the top of Mount Carmel, to the top of the mountain now. Does he see a cloud anywhere? No. And it wasn't until after the seventh time he sent his servant to look then he said, well, there's this little small cloud out there about the size of a man's fist. And that's it. So then he goes down. And what else does God do spectacular through him? Besides having the rain come in buckets, he starts to run. And he beats the chariot back to Samaria. It's about the same distance as a marathon. And he beats the chariot of four horses. Now, he can call down fire from heaven. He made it rain after three and a half years of drought. He raced the chariot back and beat him. Is that not tremendous spiritual victory? And then someone sent him a message. Her name was Jezebel. And she said, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow. And he compromised. And he lost because he compromised. What should he have said to her instead of running? He should have said to her, why wait for tomorrow? I'll meet you in the night tonight at 6 p.m. in the street, and we'll see who's going to die and who's not. Why didn't he do that? Didn't he have the power? Yeah. But you see, when you start to compromise, he runs his, the boy whose life he raised from the dead uh, up with the widow, the widow's son, who was now his servant, who had gone out there and seen the cloud, who saw the fire come down, he sees his boss turn and run scared. How does that affect him? Do you see all these things that happen? What a shame. Terrible. Terrible shame. Because you see, victory creates 
vulnerability. And that's when we have to be the most careful. David really never lost in his life. It didn't matter, but he, made it, he compromised and he made himself vulnerable. That's why with Daniel, we have to see, we have to guard against compromise constantly. Because if we start to compromise, we get on a slope we can't stop. You ever been on some ice with your car and you put on the brakes, but it just doesn't seem like you stop? In the same way, if we compromise, you start to compromise, it's very, very difficult to stop and turn things around. Now, I want us to, to keep going then. We're going to bypass Gideon because I want to talk about character. As you look back at chapters 1 and 2, this is about the character of these men. Now, normally, character comes with age, does it not? And yet here, four 15-year-old boys who are taken over to Babylon... And now they're 17, it's two years later, and they have character? Yes, they do. It wasn't about age, it was their God. You see, the private life of God's man will always have an impact on the public life. And Daniel is the perfect example of this concept. Daniel could have tried to merely endure this experience and get out of there as soon as possible. Daniel allowed his inner character and personal commitment to control his actions and to respond to the calamity in his life. I want you to consider for a moment how his character directed him. In his diet, his eating according to an uncommon standard. In his motives, he refused to take credit for what God had done, instead relying on an unblemished faith of his Savior to promote him. His honesty... He spoke the truth with unashamed boldness to those over him, regardless of the unpopularity of the truth. His discipline. He, pray, he prayed as was pleasing to God. We're going to see that in chapter 6. He refused to compromise. His integrity. He had no interest in bribes or graft. And his convictions. He stayed committed to his God, to his people, and to his friends, no matter which position in public service he held. So how does a man like that deal with circumstances and crises that arrive in his life? How he does that is going to tell you about his character. Because all of us are going to have circumstances which are adverse to us that we're going to face. All of us are going to have crises in our lives sooner or later. If you can stand up here and you can tell me, Doug, I've really never had a crisis in my life. I'm saying. Get ready. It's coming. And maybe I'll back up a little bit. Now, crises does not create character. I mean, to make that clear. But it does reveal it. The adversity that one encounters forces a choice. Either character or compromise. Your choice. At every time, and every time that one chooses character, the strength of his character grows. What happens if he chooses to compromise? The strength of his character wanes. You see, character is one of the central foundation stones in a godly man's life. God can use him because he's trustworthy. People will follow him because they can trust him. Character communicates credibility. It harnesses respect from people. It creates consistency in a man or a woman's life. And it earns trust. 
But character is more than just talk. Character is demonstrated by its actions and its attitude. It demonstrates who you are and what you do. If someone's actions and stated intentions are continually, continually wise men, then you begin to see they're wise. You have to judge a man or a woman's character by their actions and their attitudes. Now, I want you to see something here because some people believe that lawyers have an inside line to information because there was a staff meeting that went on shortly after chapter 2. A staff meeting of very high-level staff, but the boss was extremely angry when he came into this meeting. Here's probably what he may have looked like, I think. He said, what are you guys doing? I told you that if you left those four guys in Judah, they could have turned the nation back to God. Get them out. Put them someplace where they can't do any damage. And they said, well, we figured if they were in Babylon with that wicked place, no problem. Yeah, well, look what's happened now. That Daniel is in charge of the whole province. And my men, my wise men, he's now in control of them. What have you guys done? And that's how this staff meeting started. And then Lucifer says to them, but don't worry. I've bailed you out in the past. I'm going to bail you out now. Uh, I've got a plan. It's a marvelous plan. We're going to take that dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to take it and throw it right back in God's face. Let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take that statue, and we're going to use it. Do you remember what I, my idea about that brazen serpent in the, in the desert? They started worshiping it. Do you remember Gideon's ephod? They started worshiping it. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to make them worship that statue. Now, they got one problem here. We got to get rid of this guy, Daniel. You see, the four of them are strong together. But if we, if we can come up with a plan, which I've got, Satan said, to keep Daniel away, then we just have the three left and we can take them out. But once we take them out, then it's just a matter of time before Daniel will fall. He won't have his friends anymore. And without his friends, he's going to fall. They're going to fall. Now, where do you think that plan if there was such a plan, but I'm going to suggest to you there was, where do you think it's going to happen? It's going to happen in a place called the Plain of Dura. And that's in chapter 3, where we're going to see that Daniel's not there. We're not told exactly where Daniel is or why he's not there, but he's not there. And now these three guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, have to stand on their own and refuse to compromise. Can they do it? Well, we'll see. But before we finish today, there's a few final thoughts I want us to conclude with. Number one, when blessings come, don't forget your friends. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to say, well, you know what? God gave this to me. So this is mine. God gave it to you. Now, it's interesting. Someone who tends to be that way, he'll put with someone who tends to be in the position of saying, well, I've got this. I'm just going to give it all away. And you put the two of them together. If you ever came to my house, you'd see that. 
But the fact is that when blessings come, you should never forget your friends and the things God wants you to do. Number two, when you experience success, immediately focus on obedience because the attack is coming. Satan believes you're vulnerable when you've seen and experienced spiritual success. You go out and you share your faith with someone and they say yes and receive Jesus as their Savior, you better watch out. It's coming. When you are able to stand up and not compromise, watch out. It's coming. It came to Elijah. It came to David. It came to Gideon. It came to all of these men of God. And look how magnificent they are. Better be ready. Focus on obedience. Number three, when victory is granted to you, be aware of the vulnerability that it creates and seek protection. How do you seek protection? Where do you find? Who is your rock of refuge? Go to him, know his word, and start dwelling on the promises and the things that he says. Being able to know prayer like Steve quoted today, or knowing that you say, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, my stronghold and my redeemer. Gary? Yeah, so in, in, uh, so when Daniel was promoted, was it okay for him to promote his friends to positions of leadership? Yeah, but now he asked Nebuchadnezzar to do that. But yes, it was. Let's look in verse 49 again real quick, just so we can confirm that. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon. He gave Nebuchadnezzar the opportunity, but I think he's telling them, these are guys you can count on just like me. Who does Daniel want working with him? Men who are loyal and who he can trust are ones he can't. The people under him, are they going to want to undermine him? No, 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 they will just like they did in chapter 6. But if you have these guys, exactly, exactly. Yes? One thing that you see in chapter 1 and chapter 2, I think, is it says the truth, but it's very respectful. Whoever You're exactly right. He doesn't challenge the authority. He says the truth. Well, I think, and, and I think you make a very good point, now, just so everybody could hear this. He's, she is saying that Daniel speaks the truth, but he speaks it very respectfully. And he said, it seems to me, it seems to her there's a contrast between Daniel and Elijah, because Elijah is more in your face. And I think there's a difference. Whose people are the people that Elijah is speaking to? They're supposed to be God's people. Whose people are is Daniel speaking to? Well, Satan's people. They're the world. I mean, if you're not God's people, you're Satan's people. That's just all there is to it. He said, you're either for me or you're against me. Isn't there no Switzerland when it comes to God? So here, I think that was the main difference. They had come in and they had sought to destroy his country and destroy the worship of his God. And so, yes, he was very strong and, and, and very in your face. Daniel now is in somebody else's country. Oh, kind of like us now. We're in a pagan country. Didn't used to be that way, but we are now. But he's very respectful and yet uncompromising on the truth. And you can be both. 
And that's important. Very good point, Mayors. But the fourth point I wanted to make is when you choose a leader, choose someone with character. You know, if you think about this, this is very, very important because it changes everything. Does it have a change when you come to your government? Yes. Your executive leaders, it's very important. When you're choosing somebody to be in the, the legislative branch, that's very important. When you're choosing somebody to be in the judiciary. Now, we're fortunate in Texas that we get to elect our judges. New York, you don't get to. But in Texas, you do. But that puts a responsibility on the citizens who vote. Should citizens who vote go into the voting? Well, I don't know who those judges are. Now, does that same principle apply when you're picking leaders in your church? You're picking deacons? You're selecting a pastor? Is it just because he's a good preacher that you select him? Or is it because of his character? Character is key to God in selection of leaders. You know, you look at the selection the people wanted of Saul, and you look at the selection of, da of David. David had character. Saul did not. And that was the difference. They both started out as, as following God. Saul didn't have character. David did. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could join together in the study of your word. I thank you for teaching us these important and key principles. I pray, Father, that you will help us to understand that obedience is the key to the relationship with you and that a refusal to compromise is what gets us there. When we compromise, we're being disobedient. When we refuse to compromise, we're being obedient. Help us to realize, Father, how much it will mean to us if you are able to say to us on that day, well done, my good and faithful servant. May you be able to say that about all of us here. Help us to want to strive for that. Give us the motivation to desire that. And then finally, Father, it seems so many things are going wrong in our country. Wouldn't it be a perfect solution to just come back and take us out? I pray that that will be soon. In the meantime, Father, help us to understand our prime directive. Spiritual reproduction, sharing our faith. Help us to be vigilant and looking for the opportunities to do that pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.